such a great responsibility to make it fair And there must be some reparations too And don't forget the oil It's a today I'm carried by a link of emotions by a link of emotions I don't think I can understand I only know from this commotion There's a chance that we can turn the world in the palm of our hands Hello and welcome to episode 1800 of Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Meg Rowley of Fangraphs and I'm joined as always by Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Ben, how are you? I am just swell. I'm so glad. Just swell. Not a bit (laughs) above or below, but just. Just swell. Yes. And we are joined today by a guest, one of our two interview segments for this piece, Emma Bachelary of Sports Illustrated. Emma, how are you? I am also swell. Thank you for having me. <laughs> J- just swell? Or- <laughs> yes, I'm just swell. <laughs> I don't want to minimize how good it is to be swell. It's, yeah. it's nice to be swell. It's yeah. swell, in fact. But yeah. <laughs> Emma, how's the lockout been for you? Probably pretty similar to how it's been for you. Very... Mm-hmm. Quiet in a way that is both somewhat, somewhat relaxing in a strange way, uh, and yet yeah. with like a, a sword of Damocles hanging over my head, knowing <laughs> that like it's going to be a lot of work soon, but not right now. <laughs> yeah, well, I guess you've had your own round of labor bargaining going on in your <laughs> other professional life, but we can probably ask you about that a little later on. We wanted to just lean into the lockout today, and while we're in a work stoppage, we figured we would just talk about some previous work stoppages, or I guess we can't even call what we're going to talk to you, Emma, about a work stoppage. It was more of a revolt. It was a secession. I don't know what to call it. It's the Players League. But later on in this episode, we will be talking to Dane Perry of CBS Sports about a recent exhaustive golden anniversary piece he did on 1972 and the 50th anniversary of the first work stoppage and the first strike in MLB. But we're going to go back further than that with you. And I I guess just before we get to the Players League, the most recent piece that you wrote was about the Hall of Fame tracker that Ryan Thibodeau has done and that we have often relied on for some of our conversations about the Hall of Fame on the show. And there's been this whole debate about is this bad or good, right? Is this improving the Hall of Fame conversation or taking something away from it? I guess, was it Buster only who started this sort of with a, a column? Yeah, where he sort of said that it's bad or that there are bad aspects of the fact that it's sort of spoiling our knowledge of who gets into the Hall of Fame, which we will learn officially next Tuesday. But you and some others have argued that, no, in fact, it is good or it is mostly good. And I think I'm on your side there. But what's your argument for why it's good to know? I I think most of it comes from just thinking about what it was like before the Hall of Fame tracker, which, you know, it hasn't been that long. It's been, you know, this is the ninth year that Ryan has done it, which seems crazy to me because I feel like it's been part of my like Hall of Fame experience forever now. <laughs> yeah. But just this ability to A, have the transparency that comes with this of not only it kind of, I think, incentivizes more voters to make it public. And obviously, there's been a, a separate push by the BBWAA to, to make that easier. And that's kind of coincided with the public recording and tracking that Ryan has done with the Hall of Fame tracker. Um, but yeah, the, the transparency that you get from these ballots not only being made 
public in, in columns, which people have done forever, but just collected in one place where you see all of them together. But also just the kind of experience of the way that it plays out, which it is kind of a double-edged sword because it I, obviously it can get very tiresome for a Hall of Fame season to feel like it yeah. lasts two and a half months and not, you know, <laughs> a week. Like, extremely tiresome. But I think even as uh, annoying as it can be to feel like we're having the same arguments all the time, I'd rather have that discussion exist than not yeah. and have an idea of, I think it makes the whole process more rigorous, right? That like people are defending their ballots being asked to make cases for things that, you know, once upon a time were maybe just, okay, you'd put your, your ballot in a column, maybe before the results are announced, maybe not until after and just send it out. And that was it. This idea that it's being recorded step by step, that people are talking about it. Like, yes, this can make it is a pretty exhausting, frustrating process, but it, it, it makes it a real process that I think people engage with in a different way. It creates kind of a better record for accountability and transparency. And it, I think all of that is a, a good thing. And also, I, I think a, a big part of this that I, I hadn't even really realized before I sat down to do this column and talk to Ryan for it was that, you know, he says their goal is 50% of ballots before the announcement and then as many as possible afterward. Okay. And it, that seems to make sense for me that, you know, you're not after 100% of the ballots before the announcement. There's still some element of surprise. There's still a question of you, you can extrapolate from 50%, but you can't do it perfectly. That there's still plenty of space in this for some element of surprise and creating new pockets of surprise in the way that you're tracking every day and making it a daily endeavor, even as you're collecting all of this. So that's kind of where I came out on it. Well, and selfishly, and I am not yet a, a voter because I haven't been in the association long enough yet, but we don't have a perfect understanding, as you just said, of who's going to be in in advance. And I like that we maintain some element of suspense, but I think just selfishly as a future voter, as long as we have a limited ballot and are only able to dole out 10 spaces in years where we might end up with, you know, more than 10 candidates who are worthy, I think having some sense of the margins for some of these guys is actually really useful, particularly on the cases that are going to be close, because it helps to inform your strategic voting more precisely than just having to have a sense of the ballots that are out there based on columns. So, you know, as as someone who hopes that I don't face the same conundrums with my first ballot that Ben did with his and hopes to be able to just enthusiastically vote, I appreciate that we have a better sense of like who's on the edge, who really needs to have a final push because we've, you know, for better or worse, the hall has committed to strategic voting being part of this process, at least as it's currently understood. And I'd like to be an informed strategic voter when the time comes. And I think efforts like this really help to move the needle on that stuff. So, mm -hmm. yeah, it seems like there's probably only one candidate who has a realistic shot of getting in next week, according to the latest projections yeah. I saw. It seems like David Ortiz will likely get in, but there's still some uncertainty there. And then everyone else is just out entirely, which I guess if we didn't have the tracker and I didn't know that, there would still be some suspense about that, although it would just culminate in disappointment, I guess, because probably no one else would get in. So it is that question about whether it's better to know 
know and have that potential foresight. It's kind of like we were talking to Sam about last time with projections in general when it comes to baseball teams and baseball seasons. I think it's helpful to know in some ways and sometimes you just wish it you forget it. You feel like you know too much and you just want to experience it with some ignorance or just ignore what the projections are saying because you have a rooting interest. So I can see why some people would say it saps their excitement for it, but Really, it was only ever going to be like one brief little glimmer of excitement when you find out or not. And because we had the tracker, you can get weeks and months of informed discussion about this stuff, which, as you said, can be a good thing sometimes and can be a bad thing at other times. But I like it. I like data. I like that this exists. And one of my disappointments about ending up not voting this year was that I didn't get to share my ballot with Ryan. And I did get a, a understanding but sad DM from him <laughs> that he wasn't going to get a ballot for me to share. So that was a little bit of a letdown. <laughs> well, I did want to ask you something about current contemporary baseball coverage because it seems like we often have you on to talk about something that happened centuries ago, <laughs> which <laughs> I, I don't mean to imply that I don't enjoy your coverage of current baseball subjects too. And of course, your coverage of things that happened a long, long time ago is coverage of what is happening today because you reflect on what's happening now by looking back at something similar that happened in the past. But there aren't as many people doing super deep dives about things from the early 20th or late 19th century. So it sort of stands out, I guess. So last year we had you on when there was a rash of no hitters to talk about the rash of no hitters in 1917, which is not something that a lot of people had brought up at that time, I don't think. And you had to top that by going even further back in history. So you've gone back to the 19th century now to talk about the Players League, which is just fascinating. It's like the sports lost city of Atlantis or something where you like can't believe it existed, although this actually did. And you wonder what would have happened if it had continued to exist. And it seems like too good to be true and that it couldn't have happened at that point in history or any point in history. And I guess it was too good to be true because it didn't last all that long. But even when it was around, it really made a mark and it's kind of an incredible story. So what drove you to go back during this lockout to look at another time when there was a labor dispute and the players handled it completely differently and very boldly? Yeah, first of all, that was a, a very nice way of saying that n not that many people have a newspaper archive subscription <laughs> and tendency to fall down very deep rabbit holes. Yep. Yeah, sometimes it leads you to like Joe Torrey's <laughs> recipe for healthy eating in 1971, which I saw you tweet recently, which that is That came from the Hall of Fame piece because I was looking at I was I realized I had no idea what it not to go on a tangent too too much, no, but please do. Um, I, I brought this up to encourage the tangent. <laughs> I realized I had no idea what Hall of Fame discussion was like before the internet. You know, like I, mm -hmm. I remember it from before the Hall of Fame tracker, but that was still a very internet based way of, of doing it. Like, a, and so I was genuinely curious. I was like, what did they, like, how did Sports Illustrated cover the Hall of Fame? And I just picked 50 years ago as an arbitrary look. And it was like, oh, yeah, they ran the ballot in the magazine in, in November and then they had a column when it was announced and nothing in the two months in between. And I was like, wow. And uh, But one of the things they did have in those two months in between, because I had to manually check the baseball in every issue to make sure there wasn't something uh, mm -hmm. that did reference the Hall of Fame. One of the things was Joe Torrey's like, 
shockingly keto-like yeah. diet, but a very <laughs> 70s version of it. Um, how is anyone alive from that era of the world? <laughs> it's truly crazy. <laughs> no vegetables. Yeah, just just lettuce, no vegetables. And this was healthy, I guess, by the standards of the time in some ways. You can have steak. He trimmed the fat, so that's something. So you can have chopped steak or chicken, broiled or grilled, eggs poached or boiled, lettuce with only vinegar, and then some fresca or some other sugarless soft drink, coffee and tea, no sugar. So, you know, he trims the fat off the steak. He takes the sugar out of the coffee or the tea. And no beer, no booze, no milk, fried foods, vegetables. I love, I love, that's the best part. You can't have, he puts vegetables between fried foods and ice cream. <laughs> it's the same food group, basically. Fried foods, vegetables, ice cream. Just got to cut all of those things out of your diet. And then butter, bread, potatoes, desserts, fruit. Drink at least 80 ounces of water a day. So he was on to some things here. I just, I don't know how he ruled out vegetables <laughs> on that list of other things to exclude. I will say he also had great taste in, in soft drinks. I love Fresca. Um, <laughs> and I'm very surprised that that was in there. Again, not to spend too much time on Joe Torrey's 1972 diet. <laughs> Fresca was created in 1967, which I know because it's printed on the can. And I mean, this isn't that much later. I'm surprised that Fresca yeah, was adapter. that. Had yeah. the, market, the market penetration to make it onto his diet list. <laughs> exactly. Oh, <laughs> anyway, I started out that question by asking about the Players League, and then I let us down a side road there. But yeah, was this something that you were always interested in, and this was the time to fully explore it? Or was this something that you just developed a, a recent appreciation for because of the current circumstances? Yeah, so I had never heard of the Players League until it was probably a year or two ago where I was on Baseball Reference. I'm not sure what I was doing, but it was something that involved some player pages from that, you know, late 19th century, early 20th century. And I, I saw some stats from the, this league and I was kind of interested at like which leagues were considered major leagues. And then when I clicked on Players League, I was totally fascinated at this idea that there was a league that had been started and run by the players. Just, I mean, super interesting idea. And I yeah. really got into it and was like, oh my God, someone should write a book about this. And then I looked and someone had written a book about it and I, I ordered it and kind of forgot all about it by the time the book came and didn't think about this at all for, you know, yeah, about like a year until finally this winter, I was looking for something to do and was like, seems like a probably a pretty good time to return to a more interesting. It's not, as you said, it's not a labor stoppage. It, it's mm -hmm. really kind of the just the opposite. The idea of just like totally breaking the system and saying that, you know, working with owners isn't going to work with us. We're just going to start our own league. So help set the stage here. What were the events that sort of precipitated this move on the part of the players? Because they didn't have a formal union as we would understand one today, but they did have sort of a rough association of players. So what what were the what was the breaking point that sort of brought them to the place where they thought better to form our own league? Yeah. So important context for this, I think, is that, you know, this is you're talking late 1880s into 1890. So the National League exists, the American Association, which is a, a different independent league, but also kind of a major league-ish exists. The American League doesn't exist yet, but there's just a lot of movement with teams 
being created and then going bankrupt or just going out of its existence altogether. The whole landscape is a lot more fluid than it was now in terms of what it meant to start a team or for a team to go away, which I think probably laid the seeds for you could be a lot more creative in that environment, I think, than rather than having this very firm establishment of like these are the teams in these cities and and they've been there forever as like institutions but yeah so you're still pretty early in the lifespan of professional baseball and very early in the the lifespan of of thinking of baseball player as a career which was kind of an important change that had happened in the, the lifetimes of these players like they'd seen this happen and they had been growing increasingly frustrated with working conditions as they'd come to think of this more as like, this is a career, this is something we'll do, you know, every season, this means something, this is a job. So you had pay wasn't very high, lots of generally poor, frustrating conditions of like, you had to procure and launder your own uniform, and you couldn't get a free ticket for your wife to come to the ballpark and travel expenses, you know, a lot of those you were fronting yourself. So that was frustrating. And then the most frustrating thing was, uh, the reserve clause, which is was basically a very similar version of the same reserve clause that you had Kurt Flood trying to topple, you know, almost a hundred years later, which had actually been seen by the players as a good thing when it was installed <laughs> yeah, in the eighteen seventies. Really they kind of yeah. Trojan horsed it in there, <laughs> right? Because it was basically at the beginning when they put it in. Players had been so frustrated with a state of things where you didn't really have multi-year contracts, so like where you would be playing, how much money you'd be making was just totally left up in the air until owners decided like, oh, it's it's March, like here's how much money I have and, you know, congrats, um, which is like not a great way to live your life. It's nice to know there's never been a time where it's been fun to move. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. There was actually like a specific case with one player who was like ended up going to the Players League because he had been in a situation where he was functionally traded from Cleveland to Buffalo and moving to Buffalo, like sent him over the edge. Um, <laughs> and so, yes, it's always been like this, but yeah, so it was just like this system where it was totally in flux year to year. There were no guarantees. And so they originally saw that the reserve clause as something closer to like a, a franchise tag almost that like, okay, I know that this team has the ability to bring me back. I can like try to plan ahead for next year I can have some level of guarantee that my salary will be close-ish to the same thing next year. And it only applied to certain players. Like at first, I think it was four players on a team could be subject to the reserve clause. And so like players actually embraced this as like, okay, this is a measure of security. But then they just kept gradually expanding the, the powers of the clause and how many players it applied to. And soon it applied to basically every player on a team was stuck on that team for life unless they were traded, which they also really didn't like because they had no say and, and no rights over that. Because of that, you know, you had salaries were going down because it, with all of the movement that you had previously before the reserve clause, even though you had no salary guarantees, you could also kind of play teams off of one another. And that obviously went away under the reserve clause. And so these players had seen over the course of, you know, less than 10 years go from an environment that sucked in one way where they had no security, no stability, didn't know what they do from one year to the next to total team control in a way that they thought might bring them stability, but instead just drove their salaries down and, uh, you know, meant that they were getting traded in ways that they didn't like. And um, 
Yeah. So they've basically seen in the space of, you know, less than 10 years, so less than one career, two very different systems that worked poorly in different ways, but they, they hated both of them, basically, and that left <laughs> yeah. them very frustrated. Yeah. And so in 1885, they formed this group called the Brotherhood of Professional Baseball Players, which is kind of like the Players Alliance, I guess, except not at all because it was entirely white people at that point, obviously, <laughs> but not a union, more of a, a proto-union that was advocating for some things that eventually led to the creation of the Players League. Yeah. it's a It was a really interesting group in that, like, as you said, it, it wasn't organized as a union they weren't affiliated with like a larger labor organization but it was just this idea that like okay if we join together like we can a find ourselves in a better spot to advocate for ourselves in terms of trying to talk to the owners and and change conditions and they didn't really get far with that but the the other function that they had was something kind of like mutual aid which you know at the time if a player was hurt and if you couldn't appear in a game you didn't get paid like the salaries were not guaranteed and so that was a huge thing if, if you get hurt while playing or even if you got sick, which was a, a lot more common in the 1880s, there went your salary. And so they did this kind of mutual aid thing where they would help guys out if you couldn't play because you were hurt or sick. And so it really was, I think, most instrumental in just like showing them like, okay, this is what solidarity looks like. Yeah. This is, you know, we can talk about the problems we're facing we can try to help each other. Like we're not seeing much change from owners and we're getting more and more frustrated. But even though this isn't like a, a formal group with a specific labor function, we can come together and we can think about how to make things better for ourselves. And they tried to address the the concerns around the reserve clause and, and come up with a more sort of fair and balanced salary structure. And it was one that the National League was thoroughly uninterested in. <laughs> And proposed a a countermeasure, which I think is, you might point to as the thing that really precipitated this um, move for the... The Players League. Yeah, which which sounds in some ways like some recent proposals. Yes. Ideas, right? <laughs> yeah, this is basically a salary cap, a hard cap, but they would grade each player from A to E. So if you were an A grade player, you would make the, the absolute max salary $2,500 a year and then less for B, C, D. And then if you were an E-grade player, you would make $1,500 a year, and you would have to do extra work either as a groundskeeper or a ticket taker. So it's like humiliating in addition to like there's no way to improve your pay. So yeah, this was basically like all of their frustrations kind of were perfectly showcased in this one proposal by ownership to just like make everything worse in every single way. <laughs> so the leader of the players at this point of the the brotherhood is John Montgomery Ward, who is a Hall of Fame shortstop, although it took many decades for him to get into the Hall of Fame, largely or probably because of his advocacy here and some of the lingering bitterness about that. But he was also a lawyer, or at least had just gotten his law degree and was respected not only as a great player, but someone everyone liked. And so he and the other leaders realized, okay, the owner are intractable. We're not going to get anywhere continuing to talk to them, which again also seems to apply to (laughs) this moment. But instead of just uh, kicking things back and forth or trying to walk out or something and 
preserve the status quo, but in a more favorable way. They just said, no, we will do our own thing. And I don't know if you have your article open here and and would care to read Ward's words here when he announced the formation of the Players League. But as you noted, a lot of this sounds really familiar, which is one reason why I enjoy your deep dives into these historical topics and why I have my own newspapers.com subscription is that there are just so many echoes of past things in the present. Yeah, it, it really is striking. It's this is part of what they had when they what they handed out to both to all the players to give them a copy of this and also to fans, to reporters, the statement that went There was a time when the league stood for integrity and fair dealing. Today it stands for dollars and cents. Once it looked to the elevation of the game and an honest exhibition of the sport, today its eyes are upon the turnstile. Men have come into the business from no other motive than to exploit it for every dollar in sight. Like, I mean, that sounds as if it could be a, a player statement really yep. at any time. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. The, the only part I would quibble with about this statement is the idea that things were ever different, <laughs> right? Even right, before right. that. I mean, maybe when they were, you know, amateurs before anyone got paid for like a very, very brief moment. And then that was like the shining example that everyone lamented the loss of for the rest of time. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, exactly. But yeah, they they talked about walking out. They talked about going on strike on July 4th in 1889 and decided like, it's not worth it. We'll stay the course for this season. And as soon as we hit the off season for 1889, we're just making our own league. Like we all want to do it. The vast majority of them. Like, why not? And you're in this environment where they'd all seen teams pop up relatively quickly like i mean obviously the the business of baseball was very different back then so the idea of starting a new team was like do you have a team do you have a stadium that's pretty much it Mm -hmm. and so they were just like yep we're going to create our own structure like how do we think baseball should be run we the players are going to put that into action over the course of you know the the six months of the off season and then we're we're going to start our own league yeah, and I guess building a ballpark in those days was like, let's get some boards and cobble right. together some bleachers. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> a little yeah. more involved than that, but not quite what building a ballpark entails today. Yeah, exactly. It, it, that actually was one of the like really shocking things to me is that some of these ballparks were built in like six weeks, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> which feels like a, a safety concern. And um, <laughs> it was sometimes they would yeah, fall down or, yeah. or burn or whatever. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And but yeah, they basically just. Apart from that, you just had to figure out the the structure of the league. And for them, that was, you know, they knew they were going to need outside investors because none of the players had very much money because they hadn't made very much as as baseball players. But they, they wanted a system where you didn't have just like an ownership group that was calling the shots. They wanted all of the players to have ownership shares. They wanted things to be kind of governed with each team would have an eight man board where you'd have four players should be elected by the the other players themselves and you have four investors should be elected by the other investors and everything would be made every decision would be made collaboratively by that group and you'd have a similar ownership structure for the league as a whole so you you'd have no person with too much power like yes you'd have outside money coming in because you needed it but you would have a, a system that was mostly based on these democratically elected representatives that would hopefully be able to to guide things to a a better spot where your goal wasn't to make as much money as possible but was to like make a sustainable baseball league was their thinking 
And they weren't shying away from trying to compete directly with the NL. They weren't striking out in new markets. A lot of these teams were in the existing markets that the NL was populating, and sometimes their ballparks were right next door to one another, right? Yeah, which was like a a weird quirk in that they didn't intend to do that necessarily like they, they they set out they knew they wanted to operate in the same markets because they knew those were great baseball towns and i mean right as is as is today it's very regional game it makes sense that you want to stick where you found success um but yeah they end up with building these ballparks in, in what end up in a lot of cases being very close to the nl stadiums the schedule this was a decision made by the nl rather than by the players league the schedule is like exactly the same because the nl was interested in like in in pushing them so they are playing most games are happening in the same city on the same day so if you're in pittsburgh on you know may 15th there's going to be a players league game and there's going to be a national league game and it would be up to the fans to decide like what am i going to go see so that was a decision that the the national league made to kind of they were hoping it would be enough to just push the players league out under because you know the national league is more established they they had more money but it, it really instead kind of showed actually how strong the players league was in a lot of ways because the the players league had the better players like most of the the players that fans loved and appreciated had gone to the Players League. That meant that they had higher attendance, which back then was pretty much your only source of income as a team. Like you, the players were what the fans appreciated. And so the fans went to go see the Players League rather than the National League. Yeah. I mean, there were only, I guess, 60 million or so people in the U.S. at that time, and probably they were more geographically compressed even than today, and everyone was traveling by train, so there were only so many markets, I guess, that could support a baseball team and play other baseball teams at that point. So there were a limited number of options, but even so, it seems like they had the stronger product. And as you know, it, it seems like the vast majority or clear majority of players went over to the Players League do you know the reasons why the ones who didn't stayed in the NL? I, you can't call them scabs, I guess. <laughs> that doesn't quite apply to this situation. But was it just the fact that they were offered more money to stay by owners who were threatened by the Players League and they didn't want to try some new upstart league? They weren't persuaded by the oratory of John Montgomery Ward? It, it was mostly that, yeah. It was a small group that were all kind of ideologically aligned in that yeah just like they'd said from the beginning like not interested don't want to do this the national league is offering more money like that it wasn't a cause they were interested in you're right it is a weird situation where they're not scabs because they just kept doing their their job in the league they'd been playing and and at least until the very end when everything was falling apart it seemingly didn't interfere with the the players league like they didn't try to get in the way they were just like this isn't my thing and uh, Mm -hmm. go have fun. And so, yeah, it it was kind of an interesting situation where you had the vast majority, at least the vast majority of like players with name recognition going to the players league. And then you had this pretty small group who just decided to stick behind and, you know, take their chances on something that was more established and, and not mess with any of the more newfangled ideology of the players league. So they're drawing well, they have, you know, the attention of fans, the better players are playing in the Players League. What ends up being the undoing here? Because this all sounds incredibly sort of utopian. This is what we would want, right? Like a democratically run, well-attended, well-regarded league. But obviously we don't, we don't 
cover the Players League at Fangraphs today, and you don't cover it at Sports Illustrated or The Ringer. So what was the undoing here? Yeah, it is a huge bummer because, as you said, it it seemed for a while like this could really work, that they were outdrawing the National League. They had pretty strong solidarity, and yet they did have those outside investors that they'd had to bring in to get the money to make it happen. And some of these investors were interested uh, on an ideological level, like, oh, like this seems like something cool to support, but most of them had just been interested from a financial perspective, like they saw the best players in baseball going to start their own league and thought, this is a smart thing to invest in because they're better players, they'll make more money. I'm doing this strictly because I'm looking for a return on my investment. And because of the fact that they were going up head to head that entire season, margins were very slim. They weren't making a ton of money. Some teams were doing better than others. Like some teams were doing okay, but on the whole, they were losing money, especially because they'd all had the cost of building new ballparks, which is, you know, a one-time expense. But even as, as quick as it was and as haphazard as that construction was, it was still a big expense that they'd fronted. They were very nervous that they weren't getting a big return right away. And that was something that the owners and the National League saw. And the, the National League owners were like extremely nervous about everything falling apart. They, they had lost a ton of money, more than the Players League that year. They were very scared about the ability to continue. And, and they knew that if we do one more season of this, it's all going to fall apart. Like We can't afford to do another year of this. Um, and so they, they made the very shrewd decision to kind of bluff about their own financial situation to make it seem as if, you know, well, we can go on forever. Like, you know, we're willing to wait you out and go head to head again next year. Going to these investors and saying, are you willing to do this again? I don't think so. We can buy you out if you if you turn on the players. You know, this is the smart thing to do. You can recoup your investment now, but you're going to lose everything if you keep going. And so, of course, you only need so many investors to turn before the whole thing starts falling apart. And uh, that's what happened that, you know, the players were in some cases very angry in a lot of cases, just kind of like heartbroken. But it basically before they had a chance to really even try to stop it, you had investors on every team pulling out because the National League executives had convinced them it was the smart thing to do. And, uh, and then it was basically gone. Yeah. Do you think most of the players were in this for the spirit of the thing and the camaraderie and the principle or just they wanted to go where conditions would be better and the paycheck would be higher? And so when this fell apart, they were OK with going back. You know, was it just Ward and the core leadership team that really had the esprit de corps or was that generally shared from what you could tell? I think it varied. You know, I think there, there were certainly some players that were more interested in this as like a kind of utopian exercise than others. Like one of the ones that stood out to me was the team in Philadelphia invited Samuel Gompers to come talk to them, mm -hmm. which is like a very big statement on organized labor. And also is even, I think, more interesting that he came and, you know, they, they had this speech from union leader Samuel Gompers and other teams. You had much less of that interest in affiliating with like formal organized labor much less interest in, in expressing this as a an exercise of like we the people, which was a slogan that the team in New York used a lot of like this is a you know a working man's team. This is what we're all about. And, you know, and some teams, the players on those teams were less interested in kind of making that explicit connection to a cause. And so it, it seemed like when it fell apart, you had it seemed like the biggest thing was just demoralization because it you know what what ended up happening was you go back to the national league because you you have no choice 
And in a lot of ways, they came down on them harder than they'd been to begin with. That, you know, you went right back to the team that had had your rights in 1899, 1889, excuse me. The reserve clause still in place in some ways feels stronger now because you tried to, to topple it with something that was radical and, you know, really interesting by striking out on your own. And it just kind of collapsed under you. The owners, even though they've lost a lot of money and are like kind of privately panicking in a lot of cases of, okay, okay like, you know, we need to start making money now, are kind of harsher than ever in some respects. And so, yeah, the, the 1890s ended up becoming a, a pretty not great decade to play baseball. And that you get the American League coming in in 1901, kind of as a response to that in, so, in some senses that, um, yeah, the, like the players were just demoralized, the owners became stricter than ever. And so there wasn't really even a chance to try to to build something back up again because it was just so like the scorched earth effect of what what the owners did after they were able to have control again. Yeah, I I was going to ask sort of as we look to connect this to our current labor environment, obviously there are a lot of parallels in terms of the sort of relationship between players and owners. If you were going to draw lessons from from the players league to sort of apply to these negotiations that we're in the midst of, what what parallels would you draw? What might the players take from the experience of the players league as they think about how to approach their relationship with ownership now? Yeah, I mean, you, you obviously couldn't try this again, even if you wanted to, the antitrust exemption would kind of change the uh, mechanics sure. of starting your own baseball league. But, but I think the biggest thing is just the recognition that this dynamic has existed like quite literally since the beginning. And that there there's like, none of this is new, even if the specific details are like, none of these sentiments are new. And I think the biggest thing is that it sounds kind of like hokey and cliched, but what it means to have like true solidarity as a unit and to recognize that, you know, if you're operating as one group, if you're controlling the public message, that was a huge thing the Players League did that they were pretty effective with of showing that like the players are the ones who make baseball happen, which again, like sounds so simple and is so basic, but that was part of the reason they went with the name Players League that like, yes, ultimately this all fall falls apart, but they were very successful with the idea that we are the ones who make baseball happen. Like a team is just a team an ownership group can do anything, but the players are who you're here for and are, are what baseball means. I think that idea is very powerful. Messaging that to the public is very powerful. And, and I think that was where the players league had its greatest success. And I, I think it is something that you see kind of come up again and again of this idea of like, what is baseball? It's the players. Is it possible that Rob Manfred and the owners have actually been around since then and they have just stayed <laughs> young by injecting the blood of the young? These are actually the same people who are part of this negotiation because it seems like they're operating in exactly the same way. Sort of suspicious if you ask me. Someone should look into that. Definitely. <laughs> can be your next deep dive. I think one of the things that I found oddly reassuring from this was that I, I think at times there has been a perception on the part of writers and the public that, you know, 
solidarity only goes so far, right? That there is a point at which it tends to buckle and then players will make concessions to ownership. And so even though the collapse of this league is not in itself encouraging, I found it sort of reassuring that it was the investors that were really the undoing, right? There was not a failure of solidarity on the part of the players. It was just that, you know, they had investors who got got by faulty, you know, financial statements on the part of the NL, perhaps another <laughs> parallel that we might draw to today. But, you know, it wasn't that they were they were undone by exhaustion or an inability to sort of coalesce together over the long term. It was that they, you know, had to make concessions to the reality of needing investors to get things going, and that was their undoing. If one can take a, a you know, a silver lining from all of this, maybe that was one of mine. <laughs> yeah, it feels like very dark. That one of the potential lessons here is that the the urge to financialize this and to try to make it into a a, a profit making machine for investors is the undoing yeah rather than anything on the the baseball side like that um again like feels relevant but also in like a very sad way (laughs) yeah but there you are yeah do you think ward could have done anything differently if he had foreseen how it was going to end and that betrayal by the investors i mean was there any way for them to do this without the investors or was that just a necessary what turned out to be evil yeah i i think it he, in some ways, from from the reading I did, was kind of blinkered about this because he was so dedicated to the cause that he was like completely taken aback by the investors bowing out, which, you know, I think if he had, I think perhaps if they had like structured the payouts a little differently, if they had been more committed to the beginning of like a not going season by season, but like, okay, like here is when you, which this wasn't really how people did business back then. So I don't think he would have thought to do this because no one did, but like, okay, here are the returns you can expect after three years, after five years, this is a long-term investment. Like this is just like kind of seed money you're pouring in at the beginning, but it will grow with X, Y, Z. Instead, it was very much like these owners were, you know, okay, it's August of our first season. Where is our money? When that's not really how something works. If you're trying to build a league for that's going to be sustainable in the long run. I, I think it seems like they could have done more to like massage the fears of the investors by just looking at, okay, this is something for the long term. Here's how we're going to make it work. But yeah, it, it, it's a good question because it was, I think, such a good idea in many ways, like not a perfect one, but it really was like the, the vision it takes to come up with something like this is just remarkable to me. And then to to see it collapse after just one year with something that feels like it could have been avoided um even though you know they were always going to need outside investors because they didn't have money but it it, it's sad that it came out the way it did because you'd like to think that you could have gone around that somehow and and yet they couldn't yeah it's too bad and i mean i don't think that we for for some of the reasons you said and a whole host of others, we couldn't do something like this today. But I imagine that the value proposition argument to potential investors would be much more straightforward in today's world than it was back then, right? Because we have this context and understanding of sports as an extremely profitable enterprise, particularly when they're good enough to be broadcast. So in some ways, there would be it would be easier today to say, okay, you know, stick around for five years and then gosh, you'll never believe what these franchises are gonna be worth. But the environment, you know, with the existence of MLB makes that so much harder. Yeah. And I think that was also part of it that like all of these investors had seen various teams go into bankruptcy and right. have to get sold. And like that was very normal for a team to exist for like two years and then bye. So yeah, weirdly, like if you had a 21st century view of 
what investment can look like. I think it might have been uh, turned out a little differently, uh, but for various reasons, of course, it, it didn't. Yeah, and there were some subsequent challenges to MLB's dominance, none of them quite like the Players League, but you had the Federal League come along a couple decades later, and then a decade after that, there was the Supreme Court decision that you referenced that makes this harder to do, and after that, I guess there was the Mexican League attempt in the 1940s to lure some MLB players there with high salaries, and then the Continental League, which never quite came together, but... As you noted, it it would be difficult to do something like this today, but we did answer an email question last week where someone asked us essentially if the lockout just lasted indefinitely, what would happen? Like, would baseball survive or would Major League Baseball survive? And I guess there would come some point if MLB, as it currently exists, clearly was not going to be played. And there have been some challenges to the antitrust exemption. And I'd imagine that if the lockout extended for years, (laughs) that might make something like that more feasible. And of course, you have TV contracts, which are long term, and then you have the ballparks and the expense of building those. So it would be tough. But if a work stoppage somehow went on for years and years and years, I guess something like the Players League could actually happen. Not that I'm rooting for the lockout to go on for years and years and years. Yeah, I mean, if it has to happen, I would be very interested in seeing the antitrust exemption meaningfully challenged in court by a a, a player-led league. Like, (laughs) that seems like a very interesting way for it to to go down if it has to. But Mm -hmm. yeah. And the last thing I was going to ask you, I alluded earlier to this, but you are a member of the Sports Illustrated Union, which was formed a couple of years ago, and you've been serving on the bargaining committee, and you all just agreed on a contract this week, which congratulations. I'm sure a ton of work went into that, and I was in the Ringer Union when we formed and we negotiated for a deal. I was not on the bargaining committee, but just being in the union at that time gave me an appreciation for how much work goes into that and how busy the bargaining committee members were. So I wonder whether getting a front row seat to that kind of negotiation, obviously different from the MLB and MLBPA one, but some of the same principles and tactics come into play. Does that inform your knowledge or coverage or perspective on the current MLB bargaining situation? Yeah, it really has. And, you know, it's a somewhat of a a weird situation to be covering this labor dispute while also having been so i mean really the our union like kind of took over my life there for a while just because it is a lot of work yeah to get that first contract done but i learned so much about i mean it sounds silly but just about people about all my coworkers that you have so many conversations about what are people interested in what do people want what's the best way to make this happen how can you what is the best way just to listen to people to make sure that everyone is feeling heard? Like that is a, a very hard process that I learned a lot from. And then just how much of a slog bargaining can be, like what it's like to sit at a table where you're with the people who, you know, with management, the people who are, you know, controlling your work product and going back and forth over both over things that feel very small, but that you end up hashing out for hours and hours and hours. Is seeing how a contract gets made, it, you know, obviously MLB is in a, a, a different situation now and that you always kind of work off your last collective bargaining agreement. And right. because this is our first, starting from scratch is very different and you have to just spend a long time laying the groundwork for all sorts of things. But just seeing how a contract gets made and also, I mean, I think something that I had heard in covering MLB's labor dispute and you know 
had heard with hours as well, but didn't really understand until I was in it was how much movement can get done very, very quickly when time pressure is on. In that, you know, we spent months of either barely talking or, you know, having very little movement on stuff. And then finally, when we had kind of a clock at the end, huge leaps and bounds getting covered, you know, in a matter of hours. And so it was cool to realize like, oh, like that's, that's not just something people say or something that people use to kind of kick the can down the road. Like you really can watch like, you know, 50 pages of an agreement get agreed to in, you know, 24 hours. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it, it's interesting because they, there's a lot that make sports unions very particular and, you know, obviously don't want to draw too many parallels, but just being involved in, in this process and seeing how any contract gets put together was, has been extremely informative. Um, and yeah, it was just a, not to be sappy about it, but like a really cool, really enriching thing to be a part of. And um, I, I think my favorite thing I've done in my career so far. I also meant to mention that although the game on the field was largely the same in the Players League, you noted that there were a couple of differences. The quality of play was probably higher because they had more of the former Major League players, but also they added a second umpire, which seems smart, and they banned making catches with one's hat as well as one's glove. (laughs) So if we have any quibble with the Players League, it's that if not for the Players League, who knows, we could still see some players making home run robberies with their caps, which would be fun. Um, This is a a great question (laughs) and not to... Meg is laughing because I have heard about the next rabbit hole, as it were. (laughs) Oh, I am now obsessed with making catches and hats. Ben, uh, yes. do you know what the current <laughs> penalty is for trying to make a catch with your hat? Isn't it like three bases or something? It's three bases, yeah. which seems extreme to me. And <laughs> I, not to open up another rabbit hole, but I will just quickly <laughs> leave you with, as far as I can tell, this rule has been in place for a very long time, but they tweaked it a little in 1922. And until 1922, the wording was... If a fielder is foolish enough to try to make a clownish catch of a batted ball, each runner gets three bases. So that was a subnote to catching it with your hat. That like if you're foolish enough to make any clownish catch, you also get hit with three bases. Is it looking clownish penalty enough? Why do we need to have an additional penalty heaped on them? I love right. how judgy. Also- I love how judgy the rule book is. It is so judgy. It is the best. So mean. Foolish and like just say if you make a clownish catch. But no, if you are foolish enough to try to make a clownish catch, I love it. I'm so intrigued. Yeah, I feel like that came up on some early email episode of Effectively Wild, and we were (laughs) appalled by the penalty at that time, too. It does seem too harsh, and I think it would be fun. Maybe it'd be too easy. Is that the problem? Would it be too easy to make catches if you had? I mean, think of how much fun that would be, choosing whether to use your mitt or your hat and the different angles that you could get a hat as opposed to a glove. I guess it would be bad for batting averages (laughs) and BABIP and all of that, which we probably don't need to suppress offense even for further but still seems like overkill three bases for looking clownish come on yeah i've been really trying to think about it i think i'm gonna i think i'm gonna ask an umpire supervisor like the the (laughs) tom leopard who used to be the editor of the rule book and now is just an umpire supervisor i was gonna call him because i just want to know why like obviously it mechanically yes like your hat's gonna get blown out of your hand if you're trying to catch like a liner but like why just let them use their best judgment If it's a ball that can be caught in your hat, I think you should be able to catch it in your hat. Like, there's Mm -hmm. a reason little kids try to do this, because it's fun. Yeah. And I just want to know why. Like, why was, why were they so harsh about it? I I really, 
want to know. So if anyone right. has ideas about why it's so bad, why it's three bases bad, which as far as I can tell, it is the only penalty that is specifically three bases. Like there are some that are two bases and if the runner can advance further, they can. But I, I control left three bases and I <laughs> I believe it's the only one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's some strange bias against caps and other headwear because there's also that rule for catchers where they're not allowed to scoop up a ball with their mask which came up last year with Kurt Casale I think and he was just scooping a a ball in the dirt and there's a penalty associated with that too like the detached equipment rule so all sorts of rules in there that one's I guess not about looking clownish or foolish (laughs) was this like a an early like you're showing up the game or something it's like the bat flip of its day was using your your hat to make a catch or something i don't know but i look forward to your deep dive and i guess if that goes back to the 19th century too that's far enough back that we could have you back on to discuss that all right i look forward to it i'm (laughs) sure i'll have lots to say (laughs) okay well in the meantime we will link to the players league piece and the hall of fame tracker piece and all the other pieces that emma writes for sports illustrated and you can find her on twitter at emma bachelary which i always try to remember is two C's and two L's and also two M's and I guess also two I's, although non-consecutive and three E's. There's just a lot of repetition of letters <laughs> in the word. So if you're having trouble spelling it, just double up on a letter or two and you will probably find it. Thank you, Emma. Thank you. All right. We'll take a quick break now and then we will fast forward a little more than 80 years to 1972 and the first work stoppage and the first strike, which we will discuss among other subjects with Dane Perry of CBS Sports. So I want to start this segment by reading Evan Drellick's lead to his latest update or non-update on the state of the MLB CBA talks. He published this on Thursday afternoon and he wrote, Everything we've seen thus far suggests MLB owners want to test the players, that they intend to wait out the players as long as possible to see if they'll crack under the threat of losing paychecks. This lockout strategy at the commissioner's office appears designed around one goal, minimizing how much owners have to give up. If you, as an owner, wait until the last minute, players might grow impatient and you can surrender less than you would otherwise. Or if the players totally crumble, maybe you part with close to nothing. And if the players stand tall, well, at least you didn't give up any more than you had to any sooner than you had to. What ownership's approach means for players is that if they really want change after all these years of complaints about the status quo, the players are serious about achieving their goals. They will have to force owners to make it. Sounds a lot like, well, a lot of years in baseball history probably, but certainly sounds a lot like 1972, which Dane Perry recently retraced in exhaustive detail at CBS Sports in a piece called How Baseball Changed Forever in 1972, a timeline of MLB's most memorable events 50 years later. Dane, other than lockout-driven desperation, which is a, a perfectly fine reason to write something, what inspired you to do a deep dive on 72? Well, as you mentioned, that's the motivator, I think. Uh, you and Meg can both understand that we're all scrambling for content these days. Yep. And that was that was definitely the prime mover here. But to date myself, that's the year I was born. 
Mm-hmm. So there's some fascination that way. And beyond that, it's just uh, it's a general interest in the players of that era and just some of the characters that they became and how sort of like culturally everyone was kind of feeling each other out. Like, you know, what 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 are these players that we're not familiar with going to be like? And what are this what is this other group of players going to be like that we're not familiar with? It was it was just kind of like walking into a party where you don't know anyone. It seemed like all these sort of cultures finally being belatedly mashed together and having to sort things out. And that's fascinating of it. And of course, the labor side of it, the emergence of the players union and their first really big standoff with the owners. Uh, And of course, there's also a lot of tragedy spicing that year as well. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's just, you know, a lot of everything happened. Yeah, a lot was going on with mustaches that year, which maybe we'll <laughs> yeah. discuss a little later. But but labor-wise, yeah, it, it seems like a year when everything was kind of coming to a head. And compared to what we were just talking about, the late 19th century, a lot has changed. A lot has also not changed <laughs> since that point. The reserve clause is still in place. But it is starting to crack here. So the Players Association under Marvin Miller has really only been around officially for a few years at this point. But you have all of these things developing. You have Kurt Flood. His case, which has been going on for a while, is going to be heard by the Supreme Court. The appeal unsuccessfully. Ultimately, you have Ted Simmons, who is becoming one of the first to test the reserve clause and play without a contract and the automatic renewal. And then later in the year, you have the Andy Messersmith trade that sent him to the Dodgers and kind of laid the groundwork for him to be a a trailblazer with Dave McNally and really test the reserve clause. But you also have the first official work stoppage and the first strike. And it is striking, no pun intended, to think about some of the things that led to that because compared to what the players are, are wrestling with today, it seems so simple and so small scale what actually drove them to that first strike. And yet the solidarity was there and then led to additional gains. So can you describe exactly what was ultimately at stake in that dispute? Yeah, it uh, it was really the first standoff between the uh, the players and owners. They had already agreed to a CBA and, you know, the MLBPA was not a functioning union until Miller took over in the late 1960s. And he negotiated the first CBA with the owners and as CBAs go, that was a relatively uneventful one, but things in 1972 uh, got a little more complicated and there was a player strike and it was over uh, essentially a pension fund that the owners uh, had agreed to fund. And uh, isn't it quaint thinking about the days of private industry pensions? That was <laughs> the closer I get to retirement, the the more I pine for the age I never lived in. But uh, yeah. And and this will ring of the familiar anyone who follows owners these days in that the pension in those days was tied to the national television contract. And they got a new one and the owners just refused to tell them what it was worth. Like they would not tell them how much the new contract was worth. And this, of course, now hiding revenues is uh, is old hat to the owners and it's still a thing. And it's, I guess, I didn't realize it was a thing back then. I just, for for whatever reason, naivete or what have you, I just thought maybe there was just more natural transparency back then. But no, there was not. And they just refused to say what it was worth. And this led to a pension dispute. And Miller in sort of a uh, compromise, I guess, said, hey, well, let's tie it to inflation. And then it was, of course, oh, absolutely not. And then it went from there. It was a very brief strike. 
And the owner's uh, bargaining rep, John Geheron, I think is how you pronounce his name. But he said, flatly, we thought this was the time to take them on because we didn't think much of them. We didn't think they were a particularly strong union. And that's an understandable viewpoint considering how young they were, considering how difficult it would be to conjure up solidarity among, you know, on another level. Back then, baseball was, you know, sort of as it is now, made up a lot of, of a lot of uh, white suburban conservatives, if you will that were probably not inclined toward union activism, particularly when the union was not a strong entity as it is now. And that, that's, I think, one of the miracles of Miller, that he was able to get this sort of uh, rabble-rousing union environment going despite uh, some you know, cultural inclinations that worked against it. And that, uh, that remains impressive to me to this day. And Geheron was wrong, and the union ended up winning that strike. Yeah, I'm curious, you know, it's hard with a project like this to, you obviously can't include everything particularly in a year that is as eventful as this one was. Was there anything around sort of his successful agitation with the players and the way that he was able to sort of convince them of the necessity of not only the strike, but the solidarity to to hold firm that you left out or would like to have included? Because I think that this isn't, you know, I always assume that people know this era of baseball well. And then I read Twitter in response to stories like Evans, and I realize that we do not understand right. the history <laughs> of, yeah, of yeah. labor in baseball. So what from this time strikes you in terms of how he was able to best persuade them? Because I think that, you know, we're, as, as Ben said in the lead-in, there is an assumption on the owner's part still that at some point, they will crack. Yeah. So it's, you know, inspiring, I guess, to look back at a time when the union was much less strong than it is now and they were able to sort of maintain that solidarity even if it was only for a brief strike. Yeah, I, that's a good question. I, I you know, I'm not going to pretend to be sort of biographical authoritative expert on Marvin Miller's life, but I think one of the things he was supposed to, he he did that uh, was he just had a level of expertise, you know, coming from the steelworkers union and being a trained economist, he was actually able to speak to the players and teach them, which you know prior union leaders were not able to because they were essentially valets to ownership. And I think uh, he educated in very plain spoken terms the players about what was at stake, what they had the potential to win. And why all of this was terribly unfair and that, you know, the grandfatherly owner was not your friend. And in fact, he was using sort of loyalty that you presented to him against you. And I think this was uh, this was sort of that early brilliance of Marvin Miller. I would have loved to have gone into that, but I was already approaching 10,000 words and risking the <laughs> contempt of my editors. And so, yeah, that's probably something to delve into more like a late 60s examination, but you know, he just was able to speak to them in a way that uh, kind of peeled back the scales in their eyes and showed them what was going on. And he was able to do it in plain spoken terms, layman's terms that they could understand. And it went from there. Very bold of you to put the um, the 43 minute read in the byline for this piece. <laughs> that's that's auto that auto populates. And I'm like, OK, it's not 43 minutes. It did not I mean, take that long. Right. No, yeah. No. That's Yeah. So. <laughs> Yeah, especially when we're firing off like little newsers that are like one minute read and this pops up. And I'm like, okay, you're just turning people off now. <laughs> yeah, you need to disable that for yeah. certain pieces maybe. But I was listening to the latest episode of Stephen Goldman's Infinite Inning podcast because he did a little retrospective on the 72 strike as well. And from the way he described it, it sounded like Miller was almost surprised by the player's resolve when it came to this particular issue that he knew that there was going to have to be some sort of 
showdown and potentially a work stoppage, but that he wasn't even necessarily picking this particular fight as the one to make the make or break issue, but that as he was touring the spring training camps and everything, all the teams were voting to authorize a strike and they were really riled up about this. So he did a good job of, I guess, instilling in them the awareness of the power they had. And maybe just because it was such a concrete issue and it was such a simple issue. I mean, that's the thing. It's just this pension plan and they weren't asking for anything wildly exorbitant or unreasonable. It's like, let's just adjust it for inflation, basically. And the owners just weren't accustomed to having any sort of terms dictated to them, right? So just the idea that they would have to negotiate seemed like such an affront that they were like, we're not even going to talk about this, you know? Like, it's what we say goes and we just decree things and then you say yes and because that wasn't happening they drew a line and then the players drew a line and then ultimately it ended up with the situation where you lose 86 regular season games and also from what Steve described like even after they agreed to come back it was like the owners were trying to basically get the players to make up those games for free and Marvin Miller was like nope that's not happening yeah. so, so they, they didn't do that but really it was just like a complete unwillingness to engage which you know you'd think 50 years later and with many rounds of bargaining having been completed and with the players association having established its strength long ago that the owners would at least realize okay we might have to budge from our positions here at some point but i guess after getting their way a lot lately they have decided to test things again yeah, and it's, you know, I try to be, when I'm, you know, thinking about different viewpoints on different things, I try to be sympathetic and I try to think about, well, you know, this is how they, this is how their thought press process took them here. And this is why it's understandable given their background, blah, 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 blah. And with the owners back then, I sort of get it. I mean, they were just coming toward the back end of the reserve clause. The entitlement mentality in the owners had been so hardwired over the years these were their boys, quote unquote, and you know they're good boys, and they they go out there and they play hard for me and all that kind of stuff. And I would liken it to you know what if my son came up to me and said you know I I am going to I would like fifteen dollars a week in allowance instead of what you are presently giving me, and my duties will remain the same. Please respond, <laughs> and I would be like, oh, how dare you, you know, you know, and that's probably a similar mentality. Yeah. Now my sympathies completely lie with the players, but at least in that generation of owners coming out of how they've been cosseted and you know entitled over the years i sort of get it now no i do not get it <laughs> right and they were also trying to hold the line because as you detailed here like the cracks were forming in the foundation of the reserve clause, right? And mm -hmm. the owners were willing to do, I won't say whatever it took because they weren't actually willing to do all that much, but they were at least willing to say, give Ted Simmons a raise so that he would not test the legality of the reserve clause. But they just knew that that whole system was based on that. And Miller knew that too. And he knew that that fight was brewing and they weren't quite ready for it yet. But that whole thing is happening in the backdrop with Kurt Flood, with Simmons later with Messersmith and McNally. So there's a sense in 72 that maybe you're kind of on the precipice of a, a real sea change as opposed to just this isolated war over the pension plan. Yeah. And it's just all the balls that Marvin Miller had in the air at that time. I mean, not only is this determinative Kurt Flood case coming to a head, but he's also, I would imagine, day to day monitoring the Ted Simmons situation, probably in close contact with him. and. Uh, you know, I, I 
left this out and probably should not have, but I uh, read at one point in my research and that Miller was encouraging Simmons, look, if you get that kind of offer, you need to sign it. Mm-hmm. You know, the time for the fight will come. You need to look out for yourself on a certain level. And that that's impressive to me. And, uh, you know, Simmons did just that. But the, you know, the groundwork had been laid, uh, you know, thanks in part to, you know, Kurt Flood being able to secure that sort of uh, his fight led to the establishment of arbitration, which in turn led to the establishment of free agency. So, it, you know, it's, yeah. it's sort of a daisy chain of events and you, you remove one of them and everything changes. Yeah. Well, if you'd included that, it might have been a 44-minute read. (laughs) I can't ask that much of people. No, I've got 43 minutes for you, but anything more. (laughs) Yeah, It's more than I deserve. If you uh, dug into the coverage at the time, because, again, you were pulling from a number of sources and going through the whole year, not just focusing on the strike. But it is interesting because Steve did a, a little deep dive into some columns that were written at the time and, you know, people in the sporting news people in the times and compared to the columns that people critique now for being maybe too both sidesy <laughs> or, or anti-player or whatever go back and read what people were writing in 1972 because it is wild it is you know how dare you entitled you know jumped up oh you've got the best plan in the uh. world and you know you're making a mockery of the game and you're spoiled and just like the most i mean one-sided sort of takes and any journey through this sporting news archives is eye-opening. oh yeah very any, eye-opening any spink related byline it, it was a, <laughs> one of the the later spinks by that point but yeah on the fine family <laughs> tradition um and i i was thinking of this because uh the athletic i think Stephen nesbitt just did a an mlb fan survey and you know, it's maybe not representative of the cross section of all fans. It is athletic subscribers, 11,000 something voted on all of these questions. And some of them were lockout related. Mm-hmm. And at least among the respondents there, the sentiment seemed to be heavily in favor of the players. You know, one of the questions was, who are you most upset with over MLB's lockout and ongoing labor strike? 61.2% said owners. said both equally, 5.3% said players. So that's surprising to me. It is, yeah. Uh, yeah. Among people who picked a side, it was like 92% said they were more upset with the owners than the players. Now, will that continue? You know, if we lose games, Mm -hmm. I don't know. Is it because it's a lockout and not a strike at this point? I don't know. Or is it just because these are the more extremely online, you know, athletic subscribers who are voting on a poll and maybe the internet sentiment is not really reflective of a casual fan or, or more mainstream fan's opinion? But it does seem that even if a lot about the situation is the same at least like some of the sentiment seems to have shifted maybe toward the players and and of course like the conditions have changed and the way the owners are approaching things have changed in some ways and it is a an owner imposed work stoppage at this point so all of that could be influencing it but you know the caliber of coverage maybe it's not as good as it should be or as even-handed as it should be but it, it certainly has shifted since 50 years ago i would say yes I'm curious, you know, sort of on this idea of what coverage looked like at the time, if you had a sense of what 
fan sentiment was around the games that were lost because famously there were a number of games lost in this year in a way that ended up being pretty meaningful to the postseason <laughs> picture, yeah. which you know you detail here. And was sort of similarly, was there a sense on the the fans' part that I can't believe we lost what was it eighty six games because these greedy players were doing stuff they shouldn't, or was it was it more even handed? I'm I'm assi- I'm assigning virtue to nineteen seventy two in a way that's probably unwarranted. I wish I had an answer to that. In the day-to-day news articles that I read, they were primarily the New York Times. There was not much of that in there, not much temperature taking. Based on my later experiences in 1994, for instance, when I was, you know, this was pre-professional career and I was just a fan in those days, I have to imagine it was pro-owner, particularly 1972 back then, you know. Just because, you know, I think it comes down to, for a lot of fans, who started this, you know. I think that probably driving some of the opinion right now. It's an owner lockout. Right. Uh, if it's a player right. strike, well, they're the ones who walked off the job, you know, that mm-hmm. sort of thing. I think I, I have to think that's the main driver, and I certainly think that had to be the case in 1972. I can't imagine they had at their disposal the kind of coverage uh, that would allow them to look beyond that sort of surface level take uh, and sort of take them by the hand and show them, well, this is what is really going on. Like you mentioned with the been with the sport sporting news archives and that sort of thing. I imagine their consumption was probably limited to those kind of opinion pieces, even though I can't speak to that directly. Uh, right. But yeah, I, I have to imagine it was pro owner. Yeah, that's something that comes up now when you talk about the specter of losing part of the season. You know, Ken Rosenthal wrote a column for The Athletic this week where he pointed out that, at least for now, this certainly seems to be more on the owners than the players, that the owners are not engaging. And now that he is uh, free from his MLB Network job, (laughs) I guess, you know, he was uh, free to go off on Rob Manfred a little without getting any memos from anyone. But he also did get some criticism from people online because he sort of made starting the season on time the ultimate good, you know, so he wasn't necessarily saying that the blame is the same on both sides, but he was saying, hey, whatever you do, you got to figure this out because we can't lose games. And as people pointed out, well, if you take that option off the table, then that almost inherently is kind of a pro owner position because uh, that could be one of the biggest assets the players have in their corners, the ability to deprive the owners of that revenue, right? And so no one's rooting for games to be lost of course but if you're saying that the ultimate goal is not to lose games as opposed to getting some kind of fair and equitable contract then maybe you are leaning toward one side or the other even if you're not necessarily intending to but I wonder how that sentiment stood in 72 because back then there was no precedent right there had been no previous work stoppages not because the conditions were better just because the players didn't have the power to take some kind of collective action but because it had never happened I wonder if the specter of it happening was even more so considered a catastrophic scenario that had to be avoided at all costs or whether now because it has happened and we have seen the costs that can come from that whether it's in baseball or in other sports we know okay this is a thing to be avoided which I guess was always obvious that you'd rather not have a work stoppage all else being equal but just because it was the first it must have been seen sort of as the sky is falling even more than usual I'd imagine. Part of me wonders if Back in the early 70s, considering how new the MLBPA was, mm-hmm. if people's reaction was, wait a minute, what are baseball players doing with the union? They're not steel workers. They're not right. miners. You know, mm-hmm. these aren't these 
they're not, you know, blue collar tradesmen. What are they doing with the union? Mm -hmm. I would imagine the strike was probably the first a lot of people learned that they were had an organized labor presence. And, uh, you know, I don't know if there's, I don't know if labor sympathies bled over like that, or if it's one of those things where you view this as sort of a, a hobby job where they shouldn't be organized and, mm-hmm. you know, that, oh, they're getting paid to play a game, that old trope, you know? So, yeah, I, yeah. I would imagine there's some surprise about there being a union at all. Yeah, yeah I, I know people said at the time, like, hey, the average MLB career is four years or something. In what other line of work can you even expect a pension payment after four years, right? Right, I mean, that was right. A, that was a common thing people said. They compared it to other fields of work that aren't necessarily comparable and suggested that, you know, if, if this industry or, or this group of workers didn't have that, then why should MLB players have it? And, you know, it doesn't really make sense for a, a union that represents a a certain group of workers to say, well, this other group doesn't have that, so we shouldn't try to get it or something right, in, right, in a different right. industry. But but I think you know because baseball is so different, and the idea of baseball organization was so new at that point, people were kind of comparing to maybe their own pension plans and saying, well, I don't have this, so why should these greedy baseball players get it? It's my reaction right now. Yeah, I was going to, well, maybe, you know, that's part of why the sentiment has shifted. We don't have the expectation of pension plans. Anymore, yeah, we've so. all been beaten down by the system. So yeah. it's like, well, go go get theirs, man. Good for yeah. you. I wish I could do it. Exactly. Yeah. You know, woven throughout this is the actual play on the field once the players actually did return to play uh, in 72. How did you pick what you included here? I mean, obviously the things you highlighted are some of them pretty monumental in their own right, but... You know, it wasn't like these were the only important games. How did how did you pick and choose, Dane? Or were you just really I, worried I, about that forty three minute mark? Yeah, I, I I went back and forth on a lot of it, and like my default position was, you know, I was going through like daily stories and going through you know baseball reference logs and that sort of thing, and found some kind of rudimentary timelines which highlighted some things. And my process was essentially to start by talking myself out of this needs to be an entry. It's like, oh, we don't, I don't really need to include that. You know, why, you know, this level of granular detail, nobody's going to want that. Let's just skip all this stuff. Uh, we don't need to do this no hitter. We don't need to do this particular benchmark. But then I would stew over and say, like, yeah, I should probably include that. And then it just sort of came self-perpetuating like, well, if I put that in, I certainly need to put this in <laughs> and that kind of thing. So, but more than that, I just wanted to give a, uh, you know, the, I'm preaching to the choir here, I'm sure, but the beauty of baseball is just its everydayness and how, you know, every day brings something else. And it's just sort of this good friend throughout the spring and summer and fall that is there every day for you. And I just wanted to kind of convey that this is this season, despite all the, you know, sturm and drong of it is is like that. It's like the seasons we know, but these little miracles are happening for good and bad, you know, every other day or so. And uh, so I, I, that kind of motivated the descent into minutia, if we'll call it that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mentioned mustaches earlier, and there are multiple mustache-related entries here. And <laughs> we were just talking to Emma about a very pro-mustache era. John yes. Montgomery Ward, he <laughs> sported a, a mustache, but we move forward 80 years here. Maybe the labor issues are sort of the same, but the facial hair has changed. And this was a, an era when players were just trying to normalize mustaches again. And so in <laughs> April... 
the Cardinals trade Jerry Royce shortly after trading Steve Carlton, not moves that they covered themselves in glory with. And seemingly one of the reasons for that was that Cardinals owner Gussie Bush was not happy with the mustache that he had grown. And so he said, let's trade him. And that didn't work out well for the Cardinals. And on the same day, apparently the the rescheduled delayed opening day, Reggie Jackson takes the field for the A's wearing a mustache and supposedly was the first player to have worn one on the field since Wally Shang in 1914. So it had been quite a while since the last Major League mustache. And A's owner Charlie Finley is upset. He tells him he has to shave. Jackson doesn't. So Finley comes up with a scheme where he tries to talk a couple other A's into growing mustaches, hoping that it won't be cool anymore once everyone's doing it. And then Reggie won't want one anymore but then he pivots to mustaches fully and he realizes that there's a marketing opportunity here if everyone has a mustache so that (laughs) he really did a 180 on mustaches and suddenly they were everywhere at least on the ace charlie finley was in some senses awful he was virulently (laughs) anti-player and almost had like a plantation owner mentality with his players and that kind of thing but he was so insane that he just his behavior as owner just led to these incredible moments all throughout (laughs) the A's dynasty and this was one of them and uh and he and Reggie Jackson just I mean I wrote a biography of Reggie Jackson uh Mm -hmm. more than a decade ago and my favorite part of researching that was just the way he and Finley would go back and forth at each other I mean there was one part where Finley would call him in the middle of the night uh, like at three in the morning, thinking that they could get him to, while half asleep, agree to this contract that he had offered and that kind of thing. It's just things like that. And this mustache thing preceded that. And it was, I mean, just the the just the little manipulation of, okay, if he won't shave it off, I'm going to tell these guys to do it. That'll show him. <laughs> and just the, just the, just the beautiful pettiness of it was something else. And, you know, based on kind of what I'd researched at some point, Reggie was kind of off put when other people started wearing it. (laughs) And, you know, credit to Finley. He kind of, he kind of figured him out there. And, uh, but yeah, I mean, they now, that dynasty is now lovingly known as the mustache gang. And that's, that's the origin story. Yeah. You note that he offered bonuses to all the A's to grow some sort of facial hair. And there were only two holdouts, Larry Brown (laughs) and Mike Hegan refused to have facial hair, even with the bonus. (laughs) I wonder if they refused or if they were simply unable to grow a convincing stash. Yeah. yeah, You know what? That's a fair question. Clipped it in refused. There's my 43-minute follow-up piece. So. There you go. <laughs> well, and facial hair wasn't the only uh, fashion choice being made here, right? You note that this was the sort of premiere of the, the double-knit synthetic uniforms and the beltless unis that we <laughs> tend to associate with this era. I wonder if it would have been hotter to play baseball in wool or a double-knit synthetic. At least a double-knit synthetic of the 1970s, it seems like that would be yeah, I, uh, not super yeah. breathable, right? No, I would not think so. Yeah, but I guess I'd have to vote the non-wool maybe yeah. by a slim margin. But yeah, none of that sounds pleasant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you got the bullpen carts or the bullpen cars coming in, all the, the 70s, 80s aesthetics really getting started in earnest here. And you also had uh, Bernice Guerra 
who became the first female umpire in affiliated ball and unfortunately seems to have lasted only a single game before resigning just because it was so unpleasant because yes. of fans and other umpires and participants in that game and their treatment of her. So she was a, a trailblazer in that respect, still waiting for the first major league umpire who is a woman. But 50 years ago, at least uh, a barrier was broken there briefly in affiliated ball. So that's uh, something worth remembering. And another first that it's not really something that I really thought of is, oh, this must have happened for the first time somewhere. It just seems like something that always was. But of course, closers were not always a thing and closer entrance songs were not always a thing. And so you explained here that Sparky Lyle, the new Yankees relief ace, he became the first closer to have an entrance song. Against his will and over his <laughs> objections, he did not want one. And the Yankees made him have one and they played Pomp and Circumstance when he came in and he objected for years until they finally stopped playing it. But he made a good case here, I thought. He said, I asked the team management two years ago not to play the music. They did it all next year and started again this year. I just thought it was stupid and I finally got them to cut it out. What if I got the hell hit out of me? What would they play? The old rugged cross, <laughs> which is... <laughs> A good point. You do look a little <laughs> yeah. silly if you have your big yes. entrance song and then you get knocked around. Yeah, I, I, you know, I can remember decline phase Joe Nathan coming out to, <laughs> you know, some some you know foot stomping rock music, and then you know, it's yeah, it's 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 uh, it's kind of a humorous outcome, but you know, yeah. that I can see how the closers don't like it too much. But yeah, the closer entrance song that's kind of gone by the wayside these days. Like I, I couldn't name all that many closer entrance songs now I, I guess because the closer role has lost some of its luster right and you have teams that are using 10 different guys to get saves based on matchups right so they're yeah. fewer just dedicated closers where when they come in it's a whole big production and saves in general have kind of been devalued de-emphasized so there aren't as many that I can say oh, yeah, we need, maybe we can this. do uh position player pitching music now or something like that since <laughs> right. that's a growing trend <laughs> yeah which position player who pitches will be brave enough to come in to enter Sandman? Like, who is going to <laughs> oh, be? That, that would be outstanding content who, if who someone is, did that. <laughs> who will be the first? I think one of the other things that's striking, and I mentioned this before we started recording, is you know you have this very modest entry for July 12th. Arthur Rivera, a pilot based in Puerto Rico and president of the American Air Leasing Company, purchases a Douglas DC-7 aircraft in Miami. And folks who are familiar with baseball history will go, why is a plane relevant in 1972? So you do a very good job, like, slow rolling a horror film in this. <laughs> because obviously this year sadly culminated with the death of Roberto Clemente. Like, it's, what a year, I don't know. Yeah, history it's is very strange. Jackie Robinson's death also. Yeah. Just the fact that it's on December 31st is just really, it's too contrived seeming, you yeah. know what I mean? And yet it happened. And, you know, I'm sure all of your listeners are familiar with the story, but he was... Uh, uh, sending relief supplies to Nicaragua following a massive earthquake. And he was running out of planes. Uh, he had more supplies than he had cargo space on his plane. So he procured a fourth one. I believe it was a fourth one. And he interfaced with this pilot uh, whose name is mentioned in the piece. And a plane of, you know, probably not in, uh, probably not airworthy and a 
pilot who was probably not equipped to do that and a co-pilot who wasn't even certified to do it. And they had no on-flight engineer, which uh, regulations required them to have. And Clemente, rather than just sending the supplies on his way, had received word that some government officials in Nicaragua were interfering with the supplies that had already arrived and were not allowing them to get to the people who needed them worse. And Clemente said, you know, I'm going and making sure this is going the way it's supposed to go. And a mile and a half into the flight, the plane turns back and goes down in the Atlantic and everyone on board is killed, including uh, Clemente. And it, uh, it's, it's a hero's death, you know, and there are not many of those. I mean, even, you know, we tend to ascribe military deaths as heroic, but always the other side would not agree with that assessment. This is one of those deaths that I think everyone would agree is, is just a heroic demise. And, uh, as I was researching this, it still got to me, something that happened when I was barely even born. And it's uh, it's just, he was such a towering figure and such an important figure and such a great player that uh, it's still it's still jarring to go back and, and read those events and think about it. And, you, you know, I'm going through there and I'm taking all the details down. And it's like when we relive anything like that, there's a small part of you thinking maybe it won't go this way this time, which is absurd. But it's mm -hmm. kind of the way the mind works. And it, it happened with this. Yeah, and less tragically, the end to that season ended in a way that I think if, if that were to happen today, I can't imagine what the reaction would be because because of those 86 games that we mentioned that were not made up, it actually had some implications for the AL East race where the Tigers finished 86 and 70, the Red Sox finished 85 and 70, they're even in the last column. And that's it. <laughs> Season over. <laughs> Tigers win because they're half a game ahead. So I'm confident that even if there is a, a work stoppage that costs us some of the season this year, that that will not happen. Hopefully that we won't have either that or a strange 1981 sort of scenario where teams with the best records end up not making the playoffs because they don't win one of the split seasons or something. Hopefully we would come up with a, a better way to determine the winners of even a shortened season now. You know, the older I get, I think the more nihilistic I become. And I would, part of me would enjoy that kind of nonsense, just having a team win a division by a half game and just Twitter serves few purposes, but I think it would be such good entertainment in that kind of situation. Just everyone yelling at each other about, you know, we won. That's, we played the number of games and we're the division champions. No, you're not. You know, all that sort of thing. And I think it would be wonderful entertainment. And I personally uh, support the idea of having, uh, say the Yankees play 162 games and the Rays or Blue Jays or Red Sox or whoever playing 161 and ending in madness. <laughs> Will be the circumstances under which the Mariners finally make it back to the postseason. <laughs> I think we all know that they would be the one and a half game behind. Oh, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, just to bring things full circle here at the end, the other thing that happened on December 31st is that the CBA expired. And that eventually led to another work stoppage, in this case, the first lockout in 1973, which I guess was over salary arbitration, partly at least. So I don't know if uh, mm -hmm. you looked into that too much because it didn't actually fall within the purview of uh, the 72 exercise here. But the seeds of that, again, sprouted at the very end of that year. Yeah, I would love to act like I knew exactly what it was over. But as you anticipated, I 
once we got past December 31st, I logged off. And, uh, <laughs> well, if the lockout yeah. goes on long enough, you might have to do the yes. 73 sequel. So, but, uh, but yeah, I think the owners locked the players out in spring training and uh, then they agreed on a, a three-year CBA that defined the salary arbitration process with that neutral arbitrator that uh, decided between the players offer and the owners offer, which is something that the players are still fighting to protect now because the offers that the owners are making to have some sort of set scale or base it on stats or something would take away the ability to put things before a, a third neutral party. So that is still part of things. And that comes from then. And that time, at least the spring training games resumed and no regular season games were lost. So we can hope for a, a happy ending along those lines again, but Glad that you got to do this, even if it came during difficult circumstances. Uh, It was a lot of fun and also sometimes sad to relive this year. Definitely an eventful one and the one that gave us Dane Perry. So that's something at least. Is it? (laughs) (laughs) Opinions will vary on that, but no. Well, you can read Dane at CBS Sports if you have 43 minutes, and (laughs) you can also find him on Twitter at Dane Perry, where you can wish him a happy golden anniversary at some point this year. So thank you, Dane. Meg and Ben, thank you so much for having me. I I had a good time. All right, that will do it for today. Thanks for listening and hope you've enjoyed this primer on previous labor disputes. You can pick almost any point in baseball history and find that the parties had some of the same disagreements that they have today, though they didn't always handle them the same way. But when we had Evan Drellick on last year, we talked about how the few previous CBAs laid the groundwork for this current CBA dispute, but that was only going back a decade or two. Clearly, you can go back more than a century and find some of the same pressures at play. Also, if you want to hear more of the discussion about whether the Hall of Fame tracker has been good or bad for Hall of Fame discourse, check out this week's episode of Fangraphs Audio, where Jay Jaffe talks to and perhaps disagrees with Buster Olney about that very same subject. In the meantime, you can support Effectively Wild on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some monthly or yearly amount to help keep the podcast going and help us stay ad-free while getting themselves access to perks like monthly bonus episodes and an Effectively Wild patron-only Discord group, Ian Weedlin, Duncan Regan, Jake Lampert, Brennan Menke, and Kevin Bratzman. Thanks very much to all of you. You can also join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. Keep your questions and comments from me and Meg coming via email at podcast.fangrass.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter. You can follow Effectively Wild on Twitter at EWPod, and you can browse the Effectively Wild subreddit at r slash Effectively Wild. Because of some travel plans, we are doubling up on recording on Thursday, and so I will have another episode up for you very soon after this one posts. We will be back to talk to you then.